Dr. Adams, uh, I think, you know, uh, I call you lovingly old school as I've called you for years now, but uh, we'll respect the, the title of Dr. Adams today. Uh, it is an honor to have you. I think you know this because I've told you before, but it's probably been a while since I've told you, but uh, you have been one of the biggest influences on my life when it comes to education. And so it is incredibly exciting and I'm honored to have you on here today. So thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation, Dustin. Really appreciate it. And uh, I'm glad to always have a conversation with you, always. Yeah, so uh, with that, uh, let's start with the same question we ask everybody, which is who are you and what do you love about what you do? Uh, who, I, who I am is a uh, father, uh, a husband, um, uh, a sibling. Um, at the end of the day, who I am is a, uh, a man of God. Uh, I really try to try, try, try to frame my, my life after the things that um, are scriptural, quite frankly. Um, that's really who I am. And uh, that's what I've always tried to do in terms of uh, the person I am. Well, you've been a uh, superintendent now of St. Louis Public Schools for, God, is it 14 years now? So November 3rd will be 14 years. That's correct. That is crazy. Um, we've known each other for probably what, 16 years, I'd guess I'd say. Yeah. Uh, maybe a little bit longer. I, the, the, when we first met, I still remember, you know, when we were at the restaurant uh, around the, around the corner, it was called special K or something. I remember, you know, whatever it was then it's changed like 12 times since then. Um, getting the chance to know you and find out about your history is something that uh, just level set me on how you think and who you are, which is why I think so many people follow you. And that's why, you know, as a superintendent, you've been in St. Louis for 14 years. Uh, when you and I first met, I think we were in the midst of seven superintendents in a few months. What do you think the key is uh, for that stability? How have you been able to stay so long in a place that had so much volatility prior to you coming here? So for me, you know, Dustin, the, the truth of the matter is um, the years kind of just added up uh, one year after another year. <laughs> it just kind of, I call them dog years. And so in terms of dog years, I would, it'll be 91 years as superintendent. But, um, you know, all, all jokes aside, what I've tried to do is just try to uh, be honest with people and sincere and pr provide them with the right information. I've tried to keep my head down and there's always a bullets that are flying around you. There are always a rats that are running between your legs, if you will. But at the end of the day, it's about always trying to put kids first and making them the priority. And so I don't get you know too much into the dull conversations and into the noise, the white noise that occurs in the work of education in the city of St. Louis, or quite frankly, nationally as well. I've just tried to do the work. And the work for me is academic achievement for kids, uh, being fair and honest with staff and with parents and politicians, quite frankly, and not letting the noise bother me. Um, you know, I, I'm a Godfather fan, and the Godfather says, don't take anything personal. And so I, I take nothing personal. Uh, no matter what people do or say, it's not personal, it's business. And for me, it's the business of education and treating kids fairly and giving them the best opportunity and option. So that's how I've done it. Now, to be honest with you, I've, there's no magic bullet here. You know, the magic bullet is to keep your head down and keep doing the work and let the noise around you continue to be noise, not to take anything personal. Because if you take something personal, it's over with. It just ends right then and there. Well, I, I remember, you know, when I was a, a young pup, uh, 
uh, working with you and helping build, you know, your office of innovation and trying to get schools accredited. I remember sometimes we would read something in the paper and I'd show up in your office uninvited per usual. Uh, you'd always open door for everybody, but I just pop in and be the one idiot to use it. And I'd be fired up like, Kevin, we got to, our Dr. Adams, we got to, we got to go back at these folks. They, I, they can't be saying this. And he's like, well, don't take it personal. Let's keep doing the work. And that like has never left me. Um, is it hard some days to not take it personal when, you know, you're the main district in St. Louis. So they're going to say whatever they want about you in the newspaper sometimes. So, uh, yes, it is. Uh, it is hard to, uh, I, I'm not by nature a fighter, if you will, but I do fight, if you understand what I'm saying. And so sure. uh, I have to uh, remind myself that I can't take it personal because there are people depending upon me. As a matter of fact, this morning I thought about something and something somebody said or wrote, and I thought, well, I, I have to say something back. And then I stopped and say, no, I'll just wait and the time will come that person will need a response from me that's um will need something from me or need something from the district and i'll respond at that point in time but no uh, it, it is hard yes it is hard sometimes because you're human obviously yeah. and you do you do have feelings and you do have uh um uh, feelings that, that that are not necessarily always the right kind of feelings about what people do or say but at the end of the day i wait 24 hours i don't send anything back and so 24 hours, I only respond yes, no, maybe, and emails. I don't put long, long, long stuff in emails yes. uh, because it gives me an opportunity to, to frame later on what I'm thinking or how I want to think. So answer your question is yes, but I'm, I understand that it's a process and you have to believe in the process. I remember uh, when you and I were just meeting uh, when I was working at my the nonprofit, uh, I, we, we got it, we both got it similar advice, I think, from the head of uh, the St. Louis Business Journal at the time, who said any email, and I'm sure you've used this way, but I remember her telling me and then us, like, any email you send, whenever you hit send, you need to be okay with that going on the front page of the New York Times. And if you're okay with it, hit send. If you're not, edit it, get it out, and just think about it through that lens. Is that how you operate as well? That's exactly how I operate. I, I think, uh, I learned something from a, a, a former superintendent, Colonel Davis in New Orleans, and he says, emails are the coward way out. And yep. that always resonates with me. And so I never put anything in emails that I could not say to people in their face. Yep. And so people will hide behind that little button called send. <laughs> and uh, and you can't hide behind it. To your point, yes, that's how I operate. I try to put as, as least as possible in an email but I don't have a problem having a conversation with somebody. I'll say, call me, see me, uh, but I don't put a lot of stuff in emails because it is a record that will be sunshine later on. Yeah, and I mean, to, to your point, what you've lived and what you taught me was uh, so much of the communication gets lost in, lost in translation. And when you're leading, particularly in a district with a lot of uh, different advocacy groups and constituents, uh, an email can be translated four or five different ways by four or five different groups. Whereas if you can just talk to them, you can navigate the, the concerns that people have that are specific to them, right? Well, the face-to-face -face is the most important way. You get a chance to look at people in the face. That's why the pandemic has been really difficult and hard, honestly, because people have not been able to have that kind of interaction on a personal level. And so Zoom is fine, don't get me wrong. It is a great avenue for communication, but the personal communication is critical. Um, you get a chance to read people's feelings, their body language, 
all of those kinds of things that help you determine if you want to develop or continue a relationship with somebody based upon how they are communicating with you. So yes, you are right. Um, it's the, the least possible email the better. Uh, yeah. I, I've, I've said that to a million people, all of them do not listen. <laughs> okay. Uh, and they've, and they've learned to regret, uh, learn to regret it. <laughs> no, I promise you, I, I listened quickly. Uh, what I was meaning to go down earlier where I got sidetracked, I got excited to ask you and focus on the fact that you've been somewhere 14 years where, you know, when you and I met again, it was like the seventh superintendent in about three years, I think you, you shared with me your story and not your story. I mean, you're not an oversharer, but just, you know, your background upbringing. Can you share with um, our listeners, you know, where you come from, just like in terms of and how you kind of advance, you can give the, I want the deep story of like where you grew up, right? Like your childhood. And then you just give some quick highlights of your, your work history to where we are today. Because I do think that that influences people in taking you seriously uh, when you say something. So I grew up, obviously, not in St. Louis. I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, in what is called a lower night ward, which will be equivalent to North St. Louis and St. Louis, um, um, or any difficult, high poverty area in any urban city. Um, I was raised, reared, if you will, by grandparents. My mother and my father um, were separated for a period of time. I obviously got back together. But with six children, they asked my grandparents to take two of us. And I was one of the two that they asked to take. And you know, I was raised by my grandfather and grandmother. So I had those, when you say old school, you're correct, because I had that old school kind of value. And, and yes, sir, no, sir, no, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And so I attended public schools uh, my entire career, played basketball, my entire uh, school career, if you will, K-12 and played basketball, went away to college uh, to play basketball on a scholarship, I thought, got there and obviously didn't work out the way I needed to, went into education because it was important to me always to be a teacher. My mother was a, um, a graduated from college at Dillard University in music had a music degree and did some substance with teaching. And I just thought that was the place I needed to be as a teacher. So I got a new degree in special education and elementary education, and then went on to work in a little small place called the Ritter in Louisiana, um, in, uh, right outside of Lake Charles, Louisiana, and then New Orleans after that. And um, never wanted to be an administrator, um, loved teaching for 10 years. My principal kept telling me you need to go back, you need to go back, you need to go back, get your master's degree. And finally, I decided to do so. Uh, I moved from being a teacher to an administrator as a principal quickly. As a matter of fact, right away, as soon as I got the degree, they asked me to be a principal, which I did for seven um, years uh, as a middle school principal. And then I was asked to move the central office to manage all, high school, all middle schools in New Orleans. Did that for three years and then um, went back because a new superintendent came in and said, hey, I don't think you can do central office work. Um, and I went back to be a high school principal. He called me back and said, I made a mistake. Could you come back to central office? <laughs> and I said, nope. Uh, I made a commitment to do this. Get, see me at the end of the school year and I'll come back and I'll talk to you. Uh, they, they fired that superintendent that asked me to be superintendent in New Orleans. Uh, I was recommended to be superintendent in New Orleans. And so uh, at that time I needed a, a a super majority vote, which was five to two. I had four to three. And so they decided to go back to closed session and pick someone else, which was fine with me. Didn't have an issue with that. Uh, Katrina happened immediately after that. 
and I became um, the dean of a college of education at Southern University for a year. Got a call to come to St. Louis to um, to look at middle schools. So I came in and did middle schools for a year. Got a call to go back to New Orleans, which I did uh, with the Recovery School District after Katrina, putting back charter schools and all of that in New Orleans for a year and a half. Got a call from a lady that both of us know really, 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 really well, Maxine Clark with Bill DeBear, to come back to St. Louis and apply to be the superintendent, and the rest is history. And so uh, that's the that's the shortened version of it. But I guess at the core, Dustin, uh, the, the truth of the matter is, I always knew that I would be in a role of leadership. I always fought it because I did not think I deserved it or that I was the right person for it. Um, but I always knew that, you know, something would happen. It's called favor. You know, God grants you favor. And I always knew that I was in line for some kind of favor. Uh, and I just kind of put myself in a position reluctantly to do this. Uh, I am a reluctant leader in the sense that I don't know that it's, um, that I know I'm called to do this work, but I'm always questioning why God you know, chose me to do this as opposed to somebody else. So well, that's, that's it. And I think that speaks to, again, why we've become close is just, I, I love and respect your, your humility so much. And I think about, uh, you know, my wife, Ashley, who, you know, well, and uh, some of her friends who are leaders who are similar to you who think, oh, I, I don't, I, I'm not lead, I'm not leadership material, but everyone around them is saying, we need you to lead. How do we tap into those folks? How do we help the Kelvin Adams and others of today break through their the barriers limitations because we need those type of leaders more than ever now. No, that's an excellent question. That is a really really excellent question. I think what we have to do, Dustin, because there are so many people right now who who are self proclaimed leaders. Yep. They 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 frame themselves as a leader because they see in the mirror of something that nobody else sees, so, you know. Um, I think with mentorship, I think it's really about mentorship. We have to identify people and encourage them. And, and we have to find the, we have to find the right people with the right kinds of hearts to do this. And I think you know this well, I believe in the notion of servant leadership. Um, and that's an oxymoron, if you will. The idea is that, um, as a servant, how can you be a leader? And I think, how can you be a leader without being a servant? I think it's just the opposite. And my role, our role is to serve people. We do it different kinds of ways. You do it through the company that you are connected to, but you always do it in the sense of I am serving the community. I'm not going to do work at this particular school. And you and I have had this conversation multiple times because it's about the money. I'm going because I believe that this person has the right heart to lead this work. And the work that I'm doing will complement that. And so I think it's really about identifying people who have those kinds of hearts and encouraging them and encouraging them and encouraging them. I, you know, I think about Michael Jordan, and we would debate if he's the greatest basketball player alive. But um, as you know, Michael, was unsuccessful as a ninth grade player. His, his coach cut him. And so he had to go back and work really, 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 really hard to um, be accepted by the coach to make it to the next level. That humility of being told, I'm cutting you, uh, changed how he 
change his work ethic, change everything about him. Um, obviously, he's probably more arrogant today than he's ever been, but the truth of the matter is, initially, he was humbled by what occurred, and he worked really hard to get to the next place. And I think that's what happens with people like you and I, people that we're connected to, people that we need to touch. We have to make sure that we are encouraging them um, in the right kind of way to, to step up in that, step, step to the plate and lead. And that's not always easy for them to do. So you touched on it a little bit. When you talk about um, servant leaders, uh, that's probably the, the, the lens you use when you think about hiring, whether it's district staff or principals. But when you think about hiring, you know, great principals or great executive leaders that you have in your cabinet, what, what are the top, you know, two or three, and you can use more if you want, attributes that you're looking for and you're trying to glean if they have, so you know they'll be successful in your environment and the, serving the community that you're blessed to serve? So number one is integrity. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's integrity. Uh, and to me, that means it's what you do when nobody's watching. Yep. Um, that's what it is for me. That's my definition of integrity. That's number one. And you, and when I interview people, I'm asking questions that gets to the core of that issue. That's number one. Number two, I'm looking for someone who doesn't see themselves as needing a lot of stroking. If you're going to understand what I mean, somebody whose ego is not so big <laughs> that it, when you walk in a room, it overwhelms everybody. Um, and I made some mistakes along the line because I didn't <laughs> always pick that up. But I'm looking for somebody, and, and, and you, you, you framed it well, called humility. I'm looking for somebody who's kind of, who, who believes that I can get the job done, but I don't need somebody to be um, giving me a lot of support or stroking. I, I'm going to go out and do the work. Yep. The third thing, quite frankly, that, I, that I, I'm really, really, really looking for is somebody that gets the big picture, uh, especially at the central office level, not so much at the school level, but at the central office level, that their department or the area or role that they're in is not the be all and end all, that it plays a small part in the larger organization. And that's not always easy uh, yep. for people to understand because they think they come in as a chief of staff or they come in as the HR director and their department is everything. I mean, this is it. And it's not, you know, you, you play a small part in this big puzzle with over 3,300 employees, 20,000 students, 64 buildings. Um, you can't, you, 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 you're not everything. Uh, you are one piece of the puzzle well, and you have to complement other people. Back to how you and I used to work together. Like I, you say something and I agree or disagree whether I should or should not. But I think, so how do you find the balance of uh, I'm going back to our days of like having folks, you know, say, say it's chief academic officer or say it's a title one office, even go down a level, right? Like they are saying, this is exactly what I need. There's a, there's a fine line between like advocating within the organization for like this to be a key priority and assuming everyone else should see it as the priority, right? Like how do you find that fine line? Because you want entrepreneurial people who are fighting for the resources and time and money to get an attention to like make their, their efforts successful. Right. But you know, you don't hope they're not doing it to, to the detriment of the whole organization. How do you, how do you encourage people to find that balance? So it's interesting enough. You asked that question. I just spent the last three days uh, working with my departments and I met with all of the departments in some cases, the academic team, 65 people this morning. Wow. And I framed for them this notion of courageous conversation that we have to be comfortable having 
uncomfortable conversations. I mean, that's that's a that's not real in a real sense because people don't feel comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. So when people like the kind you just described, um, or when people come in with those uh, dictates around what they think they need to, for the, their department or what's happening, you have to be willing to help them or push back and help them understand that it's the bigger picture they need to think about, not the small department that might be their department. And so, uh, again, the fact that I don't take anything personal, I can listen to anybody, I can let them say what they need to say, and then I can push back and say, okay, that sounds great, that sounds fine, but it's not, that's not the best thing for the organization. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna have some of those kinds of, kind of conversations next week, but, it's, but we have to be comfortable having uncomfortable conversations and many people are not, not able to do that or, or willing to do that because they take stuff personal. Um, and I have to, I'm working, I continue to work with people to help them not take things personal. So um, I, I guess how I'm able to do it, uh, Dustin is quite frankly, just to put everything in the middle of the room, let them look at the data, look at the information, and they can see clearly that it's not about them only, uh, that it's a bigger picture. Because most people don't understand the big picture. They come in only thinking about what's best for their department, their area, uh, based on their expertise. But they never, 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 never see the big picture. Yeah, I think, so uh, I'll let you decide if you name folks in your career. So I'm going to switch back from your superintendent hat to the role you had right before this. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of folks who are listening who either are at the district office or aspire to be at a district office. And you had a really awesome opportunity to shape the future of education, not just uh, in like the recovery school district, but the whole country was looking at what you guys were trying to do down there. However, your personality, and I just know, I know you well, it was incredibly different from the person you served. And you, I think your title was the chief of staff. Is that correct? That is correct. And so your job was to execute. And I'm curious how you found, like how you, how you figured out that line of like, you know, you may not see all, you, why you have the utmost respect and relationship with uh, the person who was leading at the time. Uh, you, you've got to balance like executing with stuff and agreeing and disagreeing. How did you find that balance? Because if, if people are not there yet, they're going to be there at some point. So um, I had a boss who taught me or told me one thing that you have to manage your boss. Um, that's a different kind of concept. And so what I learned from that conversation with Colonel Davis, who was my boss at the time, I learned that it was my responsibility to manage up, mm. not to manage down, but to manage up. And so when I got to the recovery school district, that was my mindset. My mindset, quite frankly, Justin, was a mindset of supporting the person who was in charge, of going behind the scenes to make sure that what we said we could actually do, and always pushing that person out front so that person had a desire or a need because of who they were to have a big presence. Yep. But at the end of the day, they needed somebody behind the scenes to make sure that those things were, that the train was still on the tracks, if you will. Um, again, because I don't take things personal, no matter what that person did or said, it didn't have any impact on what I needed to do in terms of building stable relationships with the people who were under me and also keeping that person informed don't have an ego, so it was never my intent to be upfront. 
it was always my intent to be behind the scenes, making sure that the train stayed on the tracks. Now, the truth of the matter is that what probably bothered me more than anything else in those kinds of relationships, and people are gonna be here, so I'm glad you are raising this, is you don't wanna ever be put in a position where you believe that your integrity is being impacted by something that somebody else does. And so what you always have to make clear is that I cannot tell, I can't, I can't, I can't um, own what the person said or what the person is doing. What I can own is what I am telling you. I can own what my ability to get something accomplished to do. That person might tell you five different things. I can tell you of the five things that that person said or did, I can give guarantee one that I can do. The other four, you have to go back and see that person, okay? Because I can do only one of those things. Um, that was kind of difficult, but I learned that people weren't looking for five things. They were looking for the one thing anyway. And well, so um, you, people you, are gonna be in those central office positions and they're gonna have to manage up and they're gonna have to not take things personal. And they're really, 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 really are gonna have to be honest. I was always honest with that person. I told them when I disagreed, I told him when I agreed and I told him, and I will actually say, you just told that person five different things. We we can't do all of those things. Oh yes, we can. No, we cannot, we can't, okay? Well, this is the one thing that we're going to do. Uh, so it was frustrating, but um, I, I, I think, um, and that person will probably tell you that I was probably the best person to work with him because I was able to nuance those kinds of things and uh, he 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 knew that I wasn't going to quote unquote lie. I wasn't going to uh, uh, fabricate the truth. I was going to be open and honest with people because my credibility um, was deeper than his time in that particular place. Well, I think uh, interesting part is like now you're a superintendent and you're in the position of you need to be out front leading. Like it was it was cool to see your your skill set of you know when to follow and you know how to follow, right? Like you were leading by being a really good follower and servant in that world, right? But if you stepped into the superintendent role, you could lead. It just, you knew like what leadership looked like in that role. And I think that was an important lesson to me because I called you, uh, you were down in New Orleans. I had, you know, stumbled into a one-on-one -on -one four hour, <laughs> three hour lunch with uh, this superintendent. It was great. It was awesome. Like it was, it was really wonderful. But I remember, you know, cause I knew you well enough, at least at the time where uh, he had said, you know, like my, my plan is like a lot of, a lot of superintendents want to have a, a three point plan. My thought is let's try 10 things up against the wall. If you only do three, maybe none of them stick, but if you throw 10, Maybe you get two, three, five, six, who knows? And I called you immediately. It was like, this does not sound like you. How are you navigating this? Because that has to be a challenge. Is that pretty accurate? Of oh, God, yes. Uh, I remember the conversation. Now that you remind me, unfortunately, of that conversation. Uh, but yeah, that's exactly what happened. Uh, that person believed that you threw 10 things on a wall. And if one stick, that was great. And so it was my responsibility to make all 10 of them stick. And so uh, you can imagine me juggling different things to do that. Fortunately enough, the people who were, you know, reporting to that person and reporting to me understood the dynamics of this personality. And so we were able to nuance some things to get results mm -hmm. uh, that were not all 10 results, okay, but to get some results in a way 
that that uh, that were tangible that could make a difference with kids. And so, yeah, that was a uh, that was an interesting time. Um, what what did you learn? Because I mean, uh, this gentleman obviously again he you know I called you also to say he's saying your praises because uh, he knew like there's a yin and yang to the two of you, which is again, part of learning about leadership is how do you, especially if you're, if you're serving someone above you, how do you figure out to be the complimentary piece for them? And you did that well. What are some things that you learned um, from him that got you, that made you uncomfortable at first that you actually took into the superintendency that's helped you lead uh, in a more effective manner the last 14 years? So I will say this, um, I would not be in the seat I'm in now, but for um, me working with him. Yep. Um, it's a lesson to learn for persons who are in these difficult situations that I learn more from, I learn more from, I learn more what not to do than to do sometimes from people who have supervised me in the past. That is as much a valuable lesson as what you take away from those persons who, who are giving you everything you need, because yep. you don't walk, you don't make those same mistakes. Uh, I've been in situations. As a matter of fact, one of my mentors, um, who was a principal who just recently died, I went to his funeral in New Orleans probably about five, six months ago. I learned so much what not to do from him. Um, no, and, and and I want to be clear. I learned a great deal about what to do. But I learned about two or three big things not to do, ever, ever, ever as a principal, uh, to yell at people, to scream at people, um, to put people in difficult positions, um, not, not in a negative way, just because, you know, we all have personalities here, Dustin, and our personalities sometimes override uh, our leadership skill, if you will, in some ways. And so uh, I, 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 I learned from this gentleman that we both are not saying his name, <laughs> uh, frankly, how to uh, how to be smart around politically connecting the dots, if you will, Co politically connecting the dots to get the results that we needed to, and frankly, making demands, but not necessarily screaming, yelling, making demands, but making demands in a quiet way behind the scenes to get done what needs to be done. This, this person framed kids in a way that I think not many people have done. And this person was willing to take risks. So I learned how to take risks. I, I, I am probably risk averse by nature, but the, the role that I the, what I learned from him is you have to take some risks. You, you, you're going to have some failures, but you got to take some risks. His child, my challenge with him was he took 10 risks. Okay. And I think that was too many, but I'll take five risks. I'll take three risks with the idea. I'll get two or three things two two things that might come out of those risks so that's kind of what i learned from him i think when you and i talk early on you know when i got a chance to to work with you i i feel like uh the things that i felt like when you you would talk i mean the, the the gracious thing is is that like in your inner circle you're an open book in terms of like hey here's what i'm struggling with here's what i'm thinking and so you you owned possibly being risk adverse but the way i looked at it is you know you had just come from you know a place where like it was just risk everything it felt like every time and you being someone who grew up in the ninth ward down there, recognize that every risk, we're, we're in the business of education, like there are lives at stake. And so uh, I felt like early on, as you were trying to find your footing as a superintendent, I felt like part of that probably shaped it of like, I, I'm making decisions that are going to shape lives. I'm all about taking chances, but like 
you've lived it. So you're trying to find the right chances to take to get the right results, right? So I, I've always believed in the long game. Um, I don't believe in a short game because a short game gets, gets minimal results and they go away. Um, the president of the union, Mr. Ray Cummins, said that I've been here long enough that people can evaluate what I've done. Most superintendents come in, they do three years of work and they go. And so the plans I put in place, people can actually go back and evaluate. That's a scary place for a superintendent because most of them do three to five years and they're gone. And by the time somebody looks at the chart from when they first started, they go like, wow, he really didn't get those kind of results, did he? Um, and so I've been here long enough to, to have a track record that's, that's evaluated. And so that's something to think about. Um, in a different kind of way. If, you, if you're coming in with a great program for two or three years, you can song and dance around anything and then walk away. Um, but when you're coming and you got to put something in place that people are going to evaluate five years later, 10 years later, that's a different story. So um, yeah, that that's 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 what I've always thought about is the long game. How much longer it will be the long game for me is a different story. But I've always thought about building a system that somebody could jump into and keep it moving in a, in a positive kind of way. Yeah, if, sorry, you said Ray Cummings. Is Ray Cummings still? Uh, uh, Ray, Ray Cummings is the, is the president of the union now. Uh, he was a, a secondary person, but now he is the president of the union. He won election at the last election and likely will be running again. So I'm Ray, sure that's the name that, that, uh, that, that gets your attention. <laughs> first, first breakfast, this, this could be public, it's okay. My first week as executive director of Teach for America, it's right before you and I met, uh, Mary and Ray and a national person took me to Chris's pancake house for breakfast. And I'm like, this is great. You know me, like, I'm like you, I don't take anything personal. I want to figure out how to be partners with everybody, have real accountability. So there's no like fake, I don't expect to be owed anything. And Ray and Mary were nice enough to tell me, we've heard you've done some great things as teacher and coach at Beaumont. And we want to encourage you to reapply because we're going to put your organization out of business. And so that means your job's no longer going to be there. And <laughs> you know me well enough to know that like that day I decided I was like, oh, the game, the game switch is on. I didn't realize that's happening, but okay. Um, I, but I, when, obviously when I came to work for you a couple of years later, uh, I've always respected Ray because you can just be honest and he's yes. going to be honest. And like, that's all I need. We don't have to see eye to eye and everything. As long as I don't have to guess what you're thinking and you're okay with me not telling you exactly what I'm thinking, we're great. Uh, that That's who he is. And yeah. I think you know that really well. <laughs> uh, I, I think he's done a really good job as a union president over the last, uh, I guess it's been two years now because they oh. were a little bit in, I don't want to use the word chaos, but they had some, some hiccups going on, but he's come back and stabilizing. Frankly and honestly, you know, you haven't, you haven't framed this question, but Part of the reason why I think uh, I've been here so long as, as well as been able to, to leverage partnerships, whether that's with the business community, whether that's with the teachers union, whether that's with the philanthropic community, whether that's with the nonprofits, I've been able to leverage that relationship in a positive way that they see the district as a real partner. They don't see the district as an outlier. They don't see the district as something that they can take advantage of or vice versa. That partnership I think has been important to continue the work that we've done. Um, and, you know, hopefully there's a better impression of the district today than has ever been before. I think we had in the newspaper on yesterday a historic raise for all employees. Uh, we were able to make that happen because the work of the Special Administrative Board and obviously this board as well, continuing the notion of treating employees right by, um, by 
by um, providing the right compensation for them, but a lot of work had to take place by a lot of different people to make that occur. And the union, quite frankly, was a partner to that. The business community was a partner to that. The, 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 the political community was a partner to that, whether that was uh, the previous two mayors or the current mayor right now, they've all have been partners to uh, the district. I wanna say renaissance, if you will, or reemergence of yep. taking its right role as a leader in public education in St. Louis. We're not anywhere near where we need to be. Let me be clear about that. No urban district, I think, is. But I think we have made steps in the right direction. We'll continue to make steps in the right direction um, to get kids and families where they need to be. Yeah, I, I agree with that perception and what you said there. I think, you know, um, you've got a lot of friends who are superintendents as well. I think as coming into a super, especially this being your first superintendent role, I think if it were me, you know, as much as I like the community aspects and all the different constituencies that you've talked about, I wonder if a lot of superintendents come in thinking I've got to focus on just in-house and like neglect the important relationships out. Have you found that to be true? Or do you find that most superintendents, once you're, once you're in the role, it becomes really obvious that you need to have a great relationship with the business community. You got to have a great relationship with the mayor's office or, you know, the union or anybody else out there. So the key word I think is balance. Um, you need all of those parties that you just articulated, ones that we didn't articulate and ones I articulated. But I think what happens is superintendents sometimes get caught up in focusing in one area more than another area. And I'll frame what I mean by that. Um, I could be a political superintendent and only do the editorial pages, the opinion pages, and all of those kinds of things. And they'd be isolated in that space. I could be an academic superintendent and never go outside of this building and just work on central office. I could be a superintendent that's out there that's uh, glad, you know, uh, slapping people on the back and shaking hands. And, you know, I could do that kind of stuff as well. But you have to have a balanced approach around it. You do a little bit of all of that. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to do a lot of encouraging the persons who support kids in classrooms like teachers and principals. And you've heard me say this, and I'll say it publicly and privately. We have 64 schools. If I could find 64 great principals, I could quit tomorrow because I really believe that they're, they're the people who really make it happen at the school site. Um, and at the end of the day, a, a superintendent has to be balanced to talk to all of those audiences and try to get results by collaborating and by, by giving them the right information and being transparent. So I do think some of my colleagues play too too long or too often in some sandboxes that they should not be in for, for that amount of time. And as a result of that, they get they get negatively impacted. Um, you know, you would never hear me say anything negative about a politician in a public arena. Never, ever, ever, ever. That's not my space. That's why I don't need to be in that space. Do I agree with everything they do and say? Heavens no, I don't. But it's not a space that I need to own. But you will hear me talk about academic achievement and increasing the outcomes for kids. That's the space I need to be in. And that other space, while I'm concerned about it, I'm not gonna spend 24 hours a day focused on it. I'm gonna put my two cents in, try to influence the direction that somebody might be going. But at the end of the day, the space I'm in is the space that supports kids. That, that's awesome. I, you said something about the 64 principles. I've always known you've been about principles more than anything else. Is how do you, the school, you exist because of the school buildings, they don't exist to serve you, which is what I've loved about. Again, that's back to servant leadership. That's one of the things I took away from you. Uh, 
one of the hardest decisions, and I hope most districts don't have to ever come into those decisions, but some do across the country, is closing schools in order to maximize resources and better serve them. What advice do you have for folks? Like what lessons have you learned? Because, you know, you had to do that years ago when we first got there. And I think you had to do it again recently. What lessons have you learned and what advice do you have for folks that have to go through that? So, um, first of all, it's incredibly hard because schools are communities and they, it's like the death of a, of a, it's like the death of a community. It's like the death of a person when you close buildings. Yep. Um, I closed high schools, middle schools, and elementary you schools. You closed my school. Forget uh, that. You closed uh, Blue Jacket. Beaumont needed to close. It's the largest building in the district. And I think at the time, well, at the time I closed it, it had less than 200 kids. And so uh, it, it did not make sense from a fiscal perspective to keep it open and from a support perspective as well. We still use it for different purposes right now. But to answer your question, I learned that you have to be incredibly patient and give people an opportunity to grieve. Um, you can't do it quickly. Uh, they need time to grieve. They can wrap their heads around it if you give them that time. Um, and if you are data-driven, you have to look at the data. Don't make it about personalities, make it about the data. Now, they're gonna accept about 10% of that data. <laughs> Let's just be clear about it. They're only gonna accept about 10% of data. That means that you have to continually talk about that data such that they can accept more and more and more. If you say it one time, it doesn't get it. You got to keep saying it over and over and over and over again. The last thing I learned from the last one is you have to tell them what they're going to get as a result of that school closing. If you tell them we're closing the school to save money, that doesn't translate to them in terms of what's going to happen with that money. So yeah, you have to frame, yeah. I'm, I'm going to put a security in every school. I'm going to put a reading teacher in every school. I'm going to raise, I'm going to increase salaries. Whatever you're going to do, you have to frame that with the school closing. You can't just make it just about, I'm closing the school. Um, and you got to be patient. Like I said, you got to give people time. So you, you, you really start the conversation two or three years before by little notions of ideas that you're putting out, but you're not putting it all on at one time. Uh, this is this is a slow band-aid pull as opposed to pulling off at one time because there, 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 there are impacts that you will never, ever, ever be able to um, to change if you just do it really fast because they think, you know, you make fast decisions because you don't care about people. You make slow decisions when you're trying to bring people along. So you, you have to bring people along through the process. It's, it's like I said, it's a death. So you got you to gotta, you gotta help people heal while they're going through it. That's great. You know, as I've told you before, this podcast is for people who are leaders or aspire to be leaders. And part of being leaders is, you know, facing really tough challenges and overcoming them and like failing sometimes. And I'm just curious when you think about your career, whether it's here or anywhere else you've been along your journey, what are a couple of one or two failures that you've had that you've learned from that have helped you you know, be a better leader today? So I think the first failure is a personal failure. Um, I learned that uh, the job is not everything. Um, I am in a second marriage because I did not understand that, uh, that working 20 hours a day and minimally giving time to the people who you care about the greatest um, was not my priority. Once I got into the work, I got into the work. I'm an A personality, so working 20 hours a day is what I do, what I can do. 
And so I didn't learn that I needed to carve out time for family, for kids, for those kinds of things. And it came at a personal risk to me. The second thing I think I've learned is that the people you hire will support you if they know that you support them. They're not, you're not hiring for a position, you're hiring a person and you have to treat them like a person and you have to treat them with fairness, with dignity, with respect, all the words that we know, but it's really about building a relationship with them. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll die for you if you do that. The third thing I think I've learned um, is that there is no respect of person. I treat the custodian as well as I treat the security guard, as well as I treat the board member, as well as I treat the principal. While I might have an affinity to principals because I was one and I think it's the greatest job in America, um, so the superintendent is not, I can guarantee you, but <laughs> principal, the greatest job in America, I think that you have to honor everybody in that space that you are working in uh, to get them to get the kind of results that you need to get. Without that, I don't think you get those kind of results. So you have to treat everybody the same. I think uh, the, the mayor of New Orleans said you can walk with kings, but keep the common touch. And that's what you have to do. You have to be willing out. I've been in conversations with billionaires, with millionaires, with, with, with rap stars, with, with, uh, with, with, with basketball, athletics, you know, athletic, uh, uh, sports stars. Uh, I've been in all kinds of conversations with all of those kind of people but I don't treat them any different than I treat the custodian who comes to get my garbage can every afternoon and empty it. You just have to treat people fairly. Yeah, I, I would say that anybody who knows you and spends a second with you knows that that is uh, very, very true of you. However, I think I got a new idea for a podcast. We're going to start having you back once a quarter and we're going to talk about your relationship with Master P back in the day. <laughs> talk about, uh, you know, the hot boys because you, you were like, you were living it and when the, they were coming up, right? Like you were living it and you were, you were down there leading schools in that, in that time, right? Uh, yes. And I met all of those kind of people at Chris Paul, who at that time was a basketball player there and all of those kind of people. Yeah. And Paul, Paul uh, Dallas, who was the superintendent at that time, obviously uh, was more uh, inclined to meet those kind of people. And I came along for the ride, if you will. Um, yeah. So I, I met all of those kind of people. And oh, frankly and honestly, they put their socks on and shoes on and underwear on just like everybody else. Oh, I, I only joke because, uh, you know, again, you know, my admiration for you, but it's really just because of how you live and what you're about. And so I make the joke knowing that that would not none of that would appeal. you're fine. You'll embrace it. Right. But like that doesn't the idea of it doesn't uh, appeal to you. So we, we won't embarrass you with the Master P conversation. <laughs> um, Although I understand he's. He's uh, back rapping again, from what I said, yeah. He is, he is. I'm pretty sure he would say he never left, though. Um, <laughs> I I know we have a hard stop here, so I've got one question, and then, like, the four closeout questions we always ask that are just rapid fire. Sure. So the one question is, you know, you've been here 14 years. Hopefully you'll be here a few more. Um, what are you most proud of in terms of accomplishments uh, when you think about that you're just excited that your team, I know it's always about your team, it's never about you. So what are you most excited that your team has accomplished the last 14 years? Uh, in a word, stability. Um, and that would be in a number of different places, academically, fiscally. Uh, we have a surplus that that is uh, that others would be jealous of at this point in time. Hold on, hit pause, hit pause, hit pause. You said surplus? 
yeah. You remember yeah. when we were working together, the front page of the paper, it said, I, I, I'm pretty sure it said like 70 66, million or something. $66 million deficit. Yeah, and exactly. You remember. At the end of this year, we'll probably walk away with $150 million surplus. That is uh, awesome. So, so I guess the word stability. Um, if nothing else, my tenure has meant stability. And mm -hmm. so I'm proud of the fact that we could stabilize the district, stabilize the, the community around education um, in a way that people can build on it when I leave. Um, so that's, in a word, it would be stability. That's awesome. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, we got a hard stop. So uh, close out. We have four questions we ask every guest this season. First one is, what's a habit or discipline that you do daily? You can use more than one, but what's a habit or a couple habits or disciplines that you do daily that help you be the best leader you can be? Wow, we. Um, I know, I know. One is sleep in, as far as I'm concerned, but uh, you can you can explain that. I'm gonna leave that there for everybody to wonder what I'm talking about when I say Kelvin Adams sleeps in, and the guy I don't think he ever sleeps. So I think the one thing I do every single day. Uh, would be to wake up believing that there's not a problem that we can't solve. So when I wake up at five o'clock in the morning, I know I don't do 4.15 like you, but when I wake up at five o'clock in the morning, no matter what the problem is, bus not showing up, ice on the ground, I believe there's a problem that we could solve. And so I wake up every morning thinking that we could solve whatever problem is out there. That's awesome. Well, I, other thing I know is that I believe, do you still bike ride? I know you probably run. I, I bike do, ride. I do, I do. As oh. a matter of fact, a good friend of mine that you know very well, Rich McClure, texted me earlier today, and we're going to try to get together this weekend and do a ride. So yes, yes. <laughs> tell, tell Rich I said hi, and I miss him greatly. But uh, I, I, you know, I was always impressed because, you know, you work, you know, you, you say 20 hours a day, and you actually, it's actually fairly true uh, a lot of times, and yet you still prioritize getting a ride in, eating smart. How big of a role is that in your longevity? Um, it's a deal breaker, Dustin, to be honest with you. Monday through Friday, for sure. I do a smoothie every morning and yep. it's really what gets me started. Uh, I don't do a hard breakfast. I barely, I don't eat anything for lunch. And then obviously I eat a dinner. So I think healthy eating is what keeps me going. I don't eat a lot of, you know, if, if, if I have a weakness, it's candy. Um, but for the, for the most part, what I do is try to take care of my body, my mind, and my spirit. And the body piece is obviously eating right and exercising. The mind piece is prayer and obviously fellowship. Um, and that, that's the spirit piece as well and not taking anything personal. So that's, that's kind of what does it for me. Uh, all right, what's a book that you've read either recently or over your career that you think other people need to check out? Uh, the Bumps of What You Climb On by Warren Wisby. Uh, I own that book because of you. You gave that yeah. to me like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is a deal breaker book for me because it talks about the bumps of what you, do, what you climb on. And it really, it, it set me up for the work I do today. Uh, obviously, I've read Brian Stevenson's books lately and all of those kinds of things. But the book that resonates the most with me was the bumps of what you climb on. Mm, I, I could have guessed it, but I wanted you to say it. So, uh Third, this is actually, I don't know if I can answer this. I can, I can probably get close, but I can't answer it. We've asked everybody, Jeffrey Canada, we had on this last summer is where I started this. Just want to see what he would say is uh, when, he, when you're driving around or you're on a bike, if you ever have your, your uh, AirPods in or whatever you have, uh, what's on your playlist? What kind of music's on your playlist? So there are two pieces of music on my playlist. It's Whitney Houston and it's Luther Vandross. 
Those are the two. I just love that you said it. I was going to figure out a way to bring up Whitney Houston, but uh, again, no shame. It's just if people are around you, Dr. Adams, it's like, you know, very serious, put together. Like, as they get to know you, you open up quickly. But if they don't know you, they're just like, they wouldn't walk up and be like, Whitney Houston right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Whitney Houston and Luther Vanguard. Obviously, I like to listen to Craig Franklin and the rest of the people. But every single time I'm on my bike or I'm riding, those two, they're, they're playing. I'm listening to all of their old music, all that old stuff, uh, you know, House Without a Home and you know, hero and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm listening to. They're goats. All right. Last piece. Uh, you're around a lot of influential leaders. You're, you're talking about leadership a lot. What's the best piece of advice that you've either read or heard about recently that you want all education leaders to know, consider, uh, when they think about their leadership or just where they're at in their walk right now on their journey. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. the thing I would tell people is don't be afraid to be wrong. Sometimes we think we're right about everything, but you cannot be afraid to be wrong and be honest around that all wrong. The worst thing you can do is to be, and my lawyer says this, be wrong and strong. That's the worst thing you could do. If the best thing would be wrong and say, okay, hey, guess what? I bleed, y'all. I made a mistake. I'm sorry. I apologize. What can we do to fix this? That way you gather people into you. They acknowledge that you're human. And then they're willing to run with you to solve the problem. But if you keep fighting them and say, no, this is the only way to do it. This is it. To forget everything else. This is the only way. They resist. You never get that problem solved and you lose them. And so I think you have to be willing to do that. Don't be wrong and strong. Wise, wise words. Uh, Dr. Adams, you are someone who is not late for anything. I am making you late, which is like old times again. So I'm glad I could do that again. <laughs> Uh, I appreciate you so much for who you are, how you live, how you lead, but also joining us here today to share your heart with everyone. That's an, it's always my pleasure. We do have to get together. It's been a long, long, long time. And so your calendar is tighter than mine. Uh, and tell you, your wife uh, that I have not seen in a while, uh, my prayers are with you and her and the family. And um, I just have a great deal of respect for you. I walked in the room that, the, that you did the board for the other day and we just, because we, we went to an electronic board and I told somebody, this guy named Dustin Odom did this board for me. And we, we are just putting it back up again after the pandemic. And it is your signature board. And every single time I walk in there, I, I think about you. So thank you for being <laughs> faithful. Uh, thank you for being a man of God. And more importantly, thank you for just the person you are. No, that's amazing. I appreciate it. I forgot about that. We pulled an all-nighter for that board, by the way. Uh, yes, yes. As a matter of fact, what I think I'm going to do is take a picture of it and send it to you just so you can have a reminder of it. Yeah, that's hysterical. Oh, my goodness. All right, go back to your day. I'll text you later. Appreciate you so much. Have a blessed day, okay? All right, man. Love right. you. Bye-bye. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.